Part two, chapter twelve, the man of property. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eva Harnick. The Forsyte Saga, The Man of Property, by John Galsworthy. Part two, chapter twelve june pays some calls jolyon stood in the narrow hall at broadstairs inhaling that odour of oilcloths and herrings which permeates all respectable seaside lodging-houses on a chair a shiny leather chair displaying its horsehair through a hole in the top left corner stood a black dispatch case this he was filling with papers with the times and the bottle of eau de cologne he had meetings that day of the globular gold concessions and the new colliery company limited to which he was going up for he never missed a board to miss a board would be one more piece of evidence that he was growing old and this his jealous foresight spirit could not bear his eyes, as he filled that black dispatch case, looked as if at any moment they might blaze up with anger. So gleams the eye of a schoolboy, baited by a ring of his companions. But he controls himself, deterred by the fearful odds against him. And old Jolyon controlled himself, keeping down with his masterful restraint now slowly wearing out the irritation fostered in him by the conditions of his life he had received from his son an unpractical letter in which by rambling generalities the boy seemed to trying to get out of answering a plain question i have seen bosinney he said he's not a criminal the more i see of people the more i am convinced that they are never good or bad, merely comic or pathetic. You probably don't agree with me. Old Julian did not. He considered it cynical to so express oneself. He had not yet reached that point of old age when even foresights, bereft of those illusions and principles which they have cherished carefully for practical purposes but never believed in, bereft of all corporeal enjoyment stricken to the very heart by having nothing left to hope for breaks through the barriers of reserve and says things they would never have believed themselves capable of saying perhaps he did not believe in goodness and badness any more than his son but as he would have said he didn't know couldn't tell there might be something in it and why by an unnecessary expression of disbelief deprive yourself of possible advantage accustomed to spend his holidays among the mountains though like a true foresight he had never attempted anything too adventurous or too foolhardy he had been passionately fond of them and when the wonderful view mentioned in Baedeker 
fatiguing but repaying, was disclosed to him after the effort of the climb, he had doubtless felt the existence of some great, dignified principle, crowning the chaotic strivings, the petty precipices, and ironic little dark chasms of life. This was as near to religion, perhaps, as his practical spirit had ever gone. But it was many years since he had been to the mountains. He had taken June there two seasons running after his wife died and had realized bitterly that his walking days were over. To that old mountain, given confidence in a supreme order of things, he had long been a stranger. He knew himself to be old, yet he felt young, and this troubled him. It troubled and puzzled him, too, to think that he, who had always been so careful, should be father and grandfather to such as seemed born to disaster. He had nothing to say against Joe. Who could say anything against the boy, an amiable chap? but his position was deplorable, and this business of June's nearly as bad. It seemed like a fatality, and the fatality was one of those things no man of his character could either understand or put up with. In writing to his son, he did not really hope that anything would come of it, since the ball at Rogers he had seen too clearly how the land lay. He could put two and two together quicker than most men, and with the example of his own son before his eyes, knew better than any foresight of them all that the pale flame singes man's wings whether they will or no. In the days before June's engagement, when she and Mrs. Soames were always together, he had seen enough of Irene to feel the spell she cast over man. She was not a flirt, not even a coquette, words dear to the heart of his generation which loved to define things by a good, broad, inadequate word. But she was dangerous. He could not say why. Tell him of a quality innate in some women, a seductive power beyond their own control. He would but answer, Hamburg. She was dangerous, and there was an end of it. He wanted to close his eyes to that affair. If it was, it was. He did not want to hear any more about it. He only wanted to save June's position and her peace of mind. He still hoped she might once more become a comfort to himself. And so he had written. He got little enough out of the answer. As to what young Jolyon had made of the interview, there was practically only the queer sentence, I gather that he is in the stream. The stream! What stream? What was this newfangled way of talking? He sighed and folded the last of the papers under the flap of the bag. He knew well enough what was meant. 
June came out of the dining room and helped him on with his summer coat. From her costume and the expression of her little resolute face, he saw at once what was coming. I'm going with you, she said. Nonsense, my dear. I go straight into the city. I can't have you racketing about. I must see old Mrs. Smeech. Oh! "'Your precious lame ducks,' grumbled out old Jolyon. "'He did not believe her excuse, but ceased his opposition. "'There was no doing anything with that pertinacity of hers. "'At Victoria he put her into the carriage which had been ordered for himself, "'a characteristic action, for he had no petty selfishness.' now don't you go tiring yourself my darling he said and took a cab on into the city june went first to a back street in paddington where mrs meech her lame duck lived an aged person connected with the charring interest but after half an hour spent in hearing her habitually lamentable recital and dragooning her into temporary comfort, she went on to Stanhope Gate. The great house was closed and dark. She had decided to learn something at all costs. It was better to face the worst and have it over. And this was her plan, to go first to Phil's aunt, Mrs. Baines, and failing information there, to Irene herself. She had no clear notion of what she would gain by these visits. At three o'clock she was in Lowndes Square. With a woman's instinct when trouble is to be faced, she had put on her best frock and went to the battle with a glance as courageous as old Jolyon's itself. Her tremors had passed into eagerness. Mrs. Baines, Bosini's aunt, Louisa was her name, was in her kitchen when June was announced, organizing the cook, for she was an excellent housewife, and, as Baines always said, there was a lot in a good dinner. He did his best work after dinner. It was Baines who built that remarkably fine row of tall crimson houses in Kensington, which compete with so many others for the title of the ugliest in London. On hearing June's name, she went hurriedly to her bedroom, and taking two large bracelets from a red morocco case in a locked drawer, put them on her white wrists, for she possessed in a remarkable degree that sense of property which, as we know, is the touchstone of foresightism and the foundation of good morality. Her figure of medium height and broad build, with a tendency to embon point, was reflected by the mirror of her white wood wardrobe in a gown made under her own organization or one of those half-tints reminiscent of the distempered walls of corridors in large hotels. She raised her hands to her hair, which she wore a la Princesse de Gaulle's, 
and touched it here and there, settling it more firmly on her head, and her eyes were full of an unconscious realism, as though she were looking in the face of one of life's sordid facts and making the best of it. In youth, her cheeks had been of cream and roses, but they were mottled now by middle age, and again that hard, ugly directness came into her eyes as she dabbed a powder puff across her forehead. Putting the puff down, she stood quite still before the glass, arranging a smile over her high, important nose, her chin never large and now growing smaller with the increase of her neck, her thin-lipped, down-drooping mouth. Quickly, not to lose the effect, she grasped her skirt strongly in both hands and went downstairs. She had been hoping for this visit for some time past. Whispers had reached her that things were not all right between her nephew and his fiancée. Neither of them had been near her for weeks. She had asked Phil to dinner many times. His invariable answer had been too busy. Her instinct was alarmed, and the instinct in such matters of this excellent woman was keen. She ought to have been a foresight. In young Jolyon's sense of the word, she certainly had that privilege and merits description as such. She had married off her three daughters in a way that people said was beyond their deserts, for they had the professional plainness only to be found as a rule among the female kind of the more legal callings. Her name was upon the committees of numberless charities connected with the church dances, theatricals, or bazaars, and she never lent her name unless sure beforehand that everything had been thoroughly organized. She believed, as she often said, in putting things on a commercial basis. The proper function of the church, of charity indeed, of everything, was to strengthen the fabric of society. Individual action, therefore, she considered immoral. Organization was the only thing, for by organization alone could you feel sure that you were getting a return for your money. Organization, and again, organization. And there is no doubt that she was what old Jolyon called her a dab at that. He went further, he called her Humbug. The enterprises to which she lent her name were organized so admirably that by the time the takings were handed over, they were indeed skim milk, divested of all cream of human kindness. But as she often justly remarked, sentiment was to be deprecated. She was, in fact, a little academic. This great and good woman, so highly thought of in ecclesiastical circles, was one of the principal priestesses in the temple of Forsyteism, keeping alive day and night a sacred flame to the god of property, 
whose altar is inscribed with those inspiring words, nothing for nothing and really remarkably little for sixpence. When she entered the room, it was felt that something substantial had come in, which was probably the reason of her popularity as a patroness. People liked something substantial when they had paid money for it, and they would look at her, surrounded by her staff in charity ballrooms, with her high nose and her broad, square figure, attired in a uniform covered with sequins, as though she were a general. The only thing against her was that she had not a double name. She was a power in upper-middle-class society, with its hundred sets and circles, all intersecting on the common battlefield of charity functions, and on that battlefield brushing skirts so pleasantly with the skirts of society with the capital S. She was a power in society with the smaller S, that larger, more significant and more powerful body where the commercially Christian institutions, maxims and principle, which Mrs. Baines embodied, were real lifeblood circulating freely, real business currency, not merely the sterilized imitation that flowed in the veins of smaller society with the larger S. People who knew her felt her to be sound, a sound woman who never gave herself away nor anything else if she could possibly help it. She had been on the worst sort of terms with Bosini's father, who had not infrequently made her the object of an unpardonable ridicule. She alluded to him now that he was gone as her poor, dear, irreverent brother. She greeted June with the careful effusion of which she was a mistress, a little afraid of her, as far as a woman of her eminence in the commercial and Christian world could be afraid, for so slight a girl, June had a great dignity, the fearlessness of her eyes gave her that. And Mrs. Baines, too, shrewdly recognized that behind the uncompromising frankness of June's manner, there was much of the foresight. If the girl had been merely frank and courageous, Mrs. Baines would have thought her cranky and despised her. If she had been merely a foresight, like Francie, let us say she would have patronized her from sheer weight of metal. But June, small though she was, Mrs. Baines habitually admired quantity, gave her an uneasy feeling and she placed her in a chair opposite the light. There was another reason for her respect which Mrs. Baines, too good a churchwoman to be worldly, would have been the last to admit. She often heard her husband describe old Jolyon as extremely well-off, and was biased towards his granddaughter for the soundest of all reasons. Today she felt the emotion with which we read a novel describing a hero and an inheritance 
nervously anxious lest by some frightful lapse of the novelist the young man should be left without it at the end her manner was warm she had never seen so clearly before how distinguished and desirable a girl this was she asked after old jolyon's house a wonderful man for his age so upright and young-looking and how old was he eighty-one she would never have thought it they were at the sea very nice for them she supposed june heard from phil every day her light grey eyes became more prominent as she asked this question but the girl met the glance without flinching no she said he never writes mrs baines's eyes dropped they had no intention of doing so but they did they recovered immediately of course not that's phil all over he was always like that was he said june the brevity of the answer caused mrs baines's bright smile a moment's hesitation she disguised it by a quick movement and spreading her skirts afresh said why my dear he's quite the most harum scarum person one never pays the slightest attention to what he does the conviction came suddenly to june that she was wasting her time even were she to put a question point-blank she would never get anything out of this woman do you see him she asked her face crimsoning the perspiration broke out on mrs baines forehead beneath the powder oh yes i don't remember when he was here last indeed we haven't seen much of him lately he's so busy with your cousin's house i am told it will be finished directly we must organize a little dinner to celebrate the event do come and stay the night with us thank you said june again she thought i am only wasting my time this woman will tell me nothing she got up to go a change came over mrs baines she rose too her lips twitched she fidgeted her hands something was evidently very wrong and she did not dare to ask this girl who stood there a slim straight little figure with her decided face her set jaw and resentful eyes she was not accustomed to be afraid of asking questions all organization was based on the asking of questions but the issue was so grave that her nerve normally strong was fairly shaken only that morning her husband had said old mr forsyte must be worth well over a hundred thousand pounds and this girl stood there holding out her hand holding out her hand the chance might be slipping away she couldn't tell the chance of keeping her in the family and yet she dared not speak her eyes followed june to the door it closed then with an exclamation mrs baines ran forward wobbling her bulky frame from side to side and opened it again 
too late. She heard the front door click and stood still, an expression of real anger and mortification on her face. June went along the square with her bird-like quickness. She detested that woman now, whom in happier days she had been accustomed to think so kind. Was she always to be put off thus and forced to undergo this torturing suspense? She would go to Phil himself and ask him what he meant. She had the right to know. She hurried on down Sloane Street till she came to Bosinney's number. Passing the swing door at the bottom, she ran up the stairs, her heart thumping painfully. At the top of the third flight, she paused for breath and, holding on to the banisters, stood listening. No sound came from above. With a very white face, she mounted the last flight. She saw the door with his name on the plate, and the resolution that had brought her so far evaporated. The full meaning of her conduct came to her. She felt hot all over. The palms of her hands were moist beneath the thin silk covering of her gloves. She drew back to the stairs, but did not descend. Leaning against the rail, she tried to get rid of a feeling of being choked, and she gazed at the door with a sort of dreadful courage. No, she refused to go down. Did it matter what people thought of her? They would never know. No one would help her if she did not help herself. She would go through with it. Forcing herself, therefore, to leave the support of the wall, she rang the bell. The door did not open, and all her shame and fear suddenly abandoned her. She rang again and again, as though in spite of its emptiness she could drag some response out of that closed room, some recompense for the shame and fear that visit had cost her. It did not open. She left off ringing and, sitting down at the top of the stairs, buried her face in her hands. Presently she stole down out into the air. She felt as though she had passed through a bad illness and had no desire now but to get home as quickly as she could. The people she met seemed to know where she had been, what she had been doing. And suddenly, over on the opposite side, going towards his rooms from the direction of Montpellier Square, she saw Bosini himself. She made a movement to cross into the traffic. Their eyes met, and he raised his hat. An omnibus passed, obscuring her view. Then, from the edge of the pavement, through a gap in the traffic, she saw him walking on. And June stood motionless, looking after him. End of Part 2, Chapter 12 June pays some calls. Recording by Eva Harney.